Welcome to episode 89 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed the high tide period of the Jingongshan Bay area, when the Communist Party grew swiftly and carried out a land reform in order to try to consolidate its control of the areas surrounding the Jingong Massif. This episode, I want to turn to a series of events that were happening behind the scenes during this high tide period. The success of the revolutionaries in the Jingongshan had led higher-level Communist Party leaders to think of a number of ways in which the Fourth Red Army could be used to support communist initiatives outside of the Jingongshan. However, as these proposals arrived in the Jingongshan, Mao Zedong and Zhu De perceived that following these directives from above would lead to massive losses, very similar to the situation when Mao was ordered to join up with the South Hunan uprising that we discussed in episodes 81 and 82. This inter-party dispute over how to dispose of the Fourth Red Army is known as the Mid-Year Crisis, and this episode will explore what all happened. So let's take a step back and look at the situation in southern and central China as it may have appeared from the perspective of higher-level communist leaders at the provincial and national leadership levels who were trying to figure out what would be the best thing to do for the revolution overall. After the defeats of 1927, there were pockets all over southern and central China where communist forces were regrouping at a local level. You might remember that in episode 73, we talked about how the Communist Party launched literally hundreds of small revolts across China, almost all of which were in southern and central China, at the end of the 1920s. This reflected the ability of the Communist Party to regroup from defeat and continually form local organizations which engaged in at least low levels of armed struggle across large parts of China. In these areas, communist-led peasant militias formed what can be described as, as tiny, delicate proto-base areas. They were too small to attract the attention of the major military campaigns that were launched against the Jingongshan, but were weak and vulnerable to attack by landlord-controlled militias and also to small forays by garrisoned Guomindong militarist armed forces when those were near enough and had nothing better to do. Now, the overall strategy that the national-level Communist Party leadership had for how to use these dispersed and emergent rural forces was that their activities should be coordinated into regional rural uprisings. The idea was that when these regional uprisings broke out, they would create a wave of mass revolutionary enthusiasm among the peasantry far more broadly than what the Communist Party had been able to organize on its own, and these peasants could be formed into peasant armies, which would then be used to overrun the cities. So, even though the organizing focus for this strategy was initially rural, the main focus of the strategy remained urban, at least in its ultimate goal. Uh, this had been more or less the strategy that the Communist Party central leadership had been pursuing since the end of the United Front in the summer of 1927. Uh, the biggest and most successful expression of this strategy was the South Hunan Uprising. And we've talked about Mao's ongoing disagreement with the central leadership over this strategy repeatedly, and it's going to come up again uh, as we get into the specifics of the mid-year crisis. The problem that the national and provincial level leaderships in Hunan and Jiangsha confronted with this strategy in the middle of 1928 
was that all these little local shoots of rebellion were so tiny and vulnerable. But here, right on the border between the two provinces, was this large and recently victorious communist armed force, the Fourth Red Army. And boy, wouldn't it be great to just use it here and there in pursuit of these strategic aims, rather than for whatever it was that Mao Zedong thought that he was doing in this remote border area. As you can probably imagine, the temptation was irresistible for the people above Mao Zedong in the Communist Party hierarchy to reach out and try to use the Fourth Red Army as a tool for their own aims. The Hunan Provincial Committee of the Communist Party, after having been disrupted by repression in the early part of 1928, had been reorganized and relocated from the repressive environment that predominated in the provincial capital of Changsha to one of the longtime proletarian centers of support for the communist movement, the Anyuan Mining Complex, which lay along the Hunan-Jiangsha border, a bit over 100 kilometers to the north of the Jingangshan base area. Anyuan had been such a strong early center of support for the Communist Party that it had been called Little Moscow. And uh, despite the recent repression, there was enough support there that the provincial committee could hide out more safely there than in Changsha. One important immediate effect of the relocation of the provincial committee to Anyuan in early June 1928 was that it ended the isolation of the communists in the Jingangshan from communication with the movement in the rest of the country. The relatively close proximity of Anyuan to the Jingangshan allowed for the regular movement of correspondence and people between the two places, at least as long as proper security measures were taken. Here's how a member of the Anyuan party committee recalled later on how communications worked between Anyuan and the Jingangshan. Quote, Documents from Shanghai Central were sent to the Jingangshan via Anyuan, and documents from Jingangshan also were sent to Shanghai Central via Anyuan. The liaison for the Anyuan committee was a 20-something young man named Wang Meisheng from Changsha who worked at Anyuan. He specialized in transmitting documents. Sometimes he carried central documents in a gramophone carrier and sometimes in a wine bottle. After someone at An Yuan had transcribed the documents, he put them in the bamboo handle of an umbrella and transported them to Jingangshan. Uh, Chairman Mao wanted the An Yuan party committee to send workers to Jingangshan to become lower-level cadres in the Red Army. When I was at An Yuan, the party committee sent a number of people. So, in late May, the Hunan Provincial Committee sent an inspector, Du Xu Jing, to spend a week or two in the base and to report back on the situation in the Jingangshan. The report that Du produced was pretty critical of the state of things in the base area. Du noted that the area had uh, the area that was fully controlled by the communists was quite limited, that the local Soviets that had been set up to manage government functions uh, were overly dominated by the party, and that the party in turn was dominated by the military that in general the party did not have well-developed organizations within the Revolutionary Army, that land redistribution was inadequate, and that the peasant forces that had retreated to the Jingangshan after the South Hunan uprising had been treated pretty shabbily. The response of the Hunan Provincial Committee to this report 
was exasperation with the state of affairs in the Jingangshan and the immediate formation of new plans for how to put the forces there to better use. We'll get to that soon. What I find fascinating about this report is the way in which it, for the most part, takes a work in progress, uh, which was in fact by far the most advanced experience that the Chinese communists had had in creating an armed force of their own and in controlling territory of their, their own. I say on their own because you could say that they had more developed experiences in military affairs and governance during the United Front period when they were the junior partner to the Kuomintang, which was receiving massive amounts of Soviet aid, but that would really be comparing apples and oranges. And anyways, back to this letter, instead of marveling at how this experience was so advanced compared to anything else that the Chinese communists were doing, instead, Du Xujing compared it to an idealized picture of how things should be and found the whole thing going on in the Jingangshan badly lacking. Du's criticisms are a good illustration of how sometimes things can look really advanced or really backward or really good or really bad, just depending on the perspective that you approach a problem with. Uh, let's look at his specific criticisms here and try to grasp both what the actual historical process that was in motion was and how that process looked to an inspector sent by the provincial committee who came in to examine that process with a fixed picture in his mind of how things should look. Um, I want to take a little time with these criticisms of dues because this contrast between people who saw the revolution as a dynamic process full of unforeseen difficulties which required creative solutions and constant adaptation, on the one hand, and those who saw it as a simple matter of grasping and applying an ideology where everything was already more or less worked out and it was simply a matter of taking it up and doing it, on the other hand, the contrast between these two types of revolutionaries, of course with many people falling on the spectrum somewhere between the two extremes, is going to be a recurring issue in both the Chinese Revolution and in the history of international communism more generally. Du wrote in his report that the local Soviets that had been set up to manage government functions were overly dominated by the party and didn't function very well. As we saw last episode, the mass recruitment drive of the High Tai period, which got underway just after Du's inspection visit, was meant in part to address this issue. Um, the process that we described last episode concretely shows that this was not just something that could be willed into being. Creating functioning local governments was actually a complicated process that involved all kinds of hiccups that were not foreseen in advance. And even this process could not really get underway until some breathing room had been established through a couple of major military victories over the Kuomintang. Du's comments reflected a concept, which was widely held among the provincial leadership apparently, that once the communists had taken over an area, that setting up a local government was simply a matter of convening the local peasantry, recruiting a number of them into the party when the, the peasants quickly recognized that their interests lay with the revolution, and then flipping the on switch of the machine of local administration of the revolutionary government and letting it run as if it were some sort of magical perpetual motion machine. Last episode, we kind of scratched the surface of some of the reasons why 
this wasn't how things could work, even once the Guomindang had been temporarily cleared from the area. Du also criticized his Jingongshan comrades for the fact that, as he saw it, the party was dominated by the military, and that for the most part, the party did not have well-developed organizations within the Revolutionary Army. This was indeed an ongoing problem. It was a problem that Mao Zedong had been paying paying ongoing attention to, but as we've discussed repeatedly since episode 62 when we discussed the Sanwan reorganization of the army, and most recently in episode 86 when we discussed the complications involved in merging Judah's troops into the same army with Mao's much more politicized 31st Regiment, it was a problem that once recognized could not be quickly corrected, but rather involved a protracted process of political training within the armed forces. The most interesting criticism that Du made of the Jingongshan communists was his comment that the area that was fully controlled by the communists was quite limited. Now, Du arrived just before the big victories which expanded the base area. But even so, it begs the question of just how Du and presumably many other people envisioned the exercise of revolutionary political power in the countryside in the context of an ongoing civil war. I think that what Du Xujing was referring to here was that at any given time, the territory firmly in the hands of the revolutionary forces, as in places where the army was physically present or where a revolutionary governmental authority was functioning effectively, would naturally just be a fraction of the base area as a whole. In the rest of the base area, revolutionary authority, or or in some sense the status of the geographical area as a base area for revolution, rather than as part of the reactionary Chinese state, was in a sense a function of what structure exactly the people living there imagined themselves to be a part of. Despite the fact of an ongoing clash of armed forces between the communists and the Guomindang, the existence of a communist or, or Guomindang state in the areas claimed as a base area relied to a great extent on the communists' ability to exercise hegemony in the area. That is, their ability to get people to feel like they belong to revolutionary China rather than to non-revolutionary China. What this meant effectively was that much of the base area was in fact contested terrain, because even where the communists might have been the nearest and most convincing armed force, you know, the, the closest political group that could march 100 soldiers into a place and on that basis do whatever it wanted, at least while the soldiers were there, something in addition to armed force ultimately had to be at play in order to make the base area exist in practice anywhere where the troops were not presently located. And as you can imagine, this was something of a fluid process, with some people in any given village perhaps more convinced of the base area-ness of their village than others. Uh, in, In this regard, it is important to remember that there was a social basis for the reactionaries as well as for the revolutionaries in the countryside. In areas which revolutionary armed forces withdrew from, it was not uncommon for landlords or people associated with the landlords, such as militia leaders, to return to the area to stir up trouble for the people who sympathized with the revolution. 
In fact, in the outer reaches of the base area, there was an ongoing patchwork of conflict, basically cat-and-mouse guerrilla warfare, between the communists and their supporters and the remnants of the landlord militias, uh, with either side predominating whenever the larger armed forces associated with their side were brought in to tip the scales. Uh, when we've spoken about Mao's guerrilla activities in western Yongxin County in recent episodes, intervening in these conflicts and fanning the flames of peasant guerrilla warfare was precisely a big part of what he was up to. Um, what came to mind uh, when I read this remark by Du Xu Jing about just how small the area was that was, in his mind, uh, actually firmly controlled by the communists— uh, was the various claims I've heard over the years about different revolutionary groups and how much territory they controlled, uh, what percentage of a country's territory or that they control an area the size of some U.S. state or another. I think that usually when I've heard these claims, the form of control that the speaker intends to convey uh, is, or the writer intends to convey is much like that which Du Xu Jing conceived of. But in reality... I think things tend to be a bit hazier, and areas claimed as controlled were in reality more like areas where there was seriously contested hegemony. Um, and for people who might be wondering what I'm talking about, just, you know, if, if over the course of a couple decades you, you follow the course of various, you know, of revolutionary wars around the world, you know, eventually when, when these wars have some degree of success, you know, they'll control a certain amount of territory and, you know, people show up or some articles will appear and they'll say, oh, well, they control 80% of the country or 60% of the country or this or that. And, you know, so, I mean, if we, if you just go back over the past 20 or 30 years or so, this could apply to any number of specific places. And I just, I just don't want to name any particular place because, once I start name saying, oh, they said this here, you know, people might misconstrue what I'm saying as it's just some sort of diss on people when, when what I'm really trying to do is get at um, a sort of um, way of thinking about uh, revolutionary political power in the countryside. And I'm very much not interested here at all in, in saying, oh, those people who, you know, were doing solidarity work for that revolutionary struggle, you know, or they were real dumb or something. I'm not interested in saying anything like that at all. So I just not naming anything particular, not to be coy, just so that, you know, people don't get misconstrued what I'm saying, because people tend to be kind of sensitive. Anyways, uh, let's move on to the Hunan Provincial Committee's actions after it received Du Xu Jing's report. On June 19th, pretty much right after getting Du's report, the Hunan Provincial Committee passed a resolution and wrote an accompanying letter expanding on the contents of the resolution. The Provincial Committee resolved that the Jigongshan base area should be expanded to the west and north, particularly in Hunan, so as to be better positioned both to aid the communists in South Hunan and in the Anyuan area. Additionally, this would have the advantage of putting Mao and Zhu in closer and easier contact with the provincial leadership in Anyuan, thus limiting their scope for independent decision-making and putting them more firmly under the command of the provincial leadership. In order to accomplish this, the armed forces of the communists should triple in size, and in general, Mao was attacked for being too conservative in the speed with which he was expanding the base area. 
The June 19th resolution and letter were sent off to the Jingongshan with a cadre named Yuan Desheng, who had been sent to participate in the work of implementing the provincial leadership's guidance. But on June 26th, the provincial leadership got impatient because it hadn't heard anything yet and sent Du Xujing back to the Jingongshan with two more letters which bluntly and aggressively reasserted what had been said in the first two documents. Naturally, all four of these documents, the two dated June 19th and the two dated June 26th, uh, all arrived at the same time on June 30th, because Yuan Desheng had gone up to Maoping and waited around there before moving on to Yongxin, where he found Mao implementing the high tide policies in the wake of the recent victory over the Kuomintang, while Du Xujing went more directly to Yongxin. Here's the text of one of the June 26th letters so that you can get a sense for the tone and content. The Provincial Committee has decided that after the 4th Army has attacked Yongxin, it must immediately expand towards southern Hunan. While Comrade Yuan Wensai and a battalion remain to defend Jingongshan, in addition, 200 rifles are to be taken from the 28th Regiment and used to equip the Lianhua and Yongxin peasants, and the utmost effort is to be expended to expand Red Guard detachments and to implement a Red Martial Law so as to use the fighting strength of the masses to stop the enemy army's invasion and to construct a Hunan Jiangsha border base which is based on the workers and peasants. You ought to correct the attitude of relying on the Red Army and actively to raise the masses' self-confidence and creative power. This is vital. This is vital. So, so here we see once again this, um, this return to this, um, this conflict between Mao and the higher-level party leadership between what the role would be of armed mass organizations uh, versus uh, a, uh, something constituted as a formal Red Army. And uh, here they're getting very mad at Mao for continuing to emphasize the role of the Red Army and not... Uh, not putting enough emphasis on just arming the workers and peasants. Uh, returning to the letter, Comrade Mao Zedong must accompany the army when it sorties. The provincial committee has dispatched Comrade Yang Kaiming to become special committee secretary in his place. Comrade Yuan Wensai is to participate on the special committee, and you are to appoint two of the ablest comrades from Lianhua to work on the committee as well. The rest of its members may remain as before. For details, consult the Provincial Committee's circular. In addition, you can hear everything personally from the Provincial Committee Inspector Comrade Du Xujing and from Comrade Yang Kaiming. One remarkable passage in the other June 26th letter commands the 4th Red Army to, quote, kill their way along a bloody route, end quote, back into South Hunan and to find the peasants who had participated in the South Hunan uprising, then fled to the Jingongshan, and who then later returned to South Hunan. The 4th Red Army was commanded to reorganize these peasants into an armed force, use that force to seize a good part of South Hunan and turn it into a new base area, and then use this force to strike further north into East Hunan to launch a new uprising. So, as we can see, the Hunan Provincial Committee had decided that it was taking things in hand, and was going to exercise firm control of the actions of the base area armed force. When these four documents arrived in Yongxin, 
the local party cadres immediately called a meeting to discuss the content of the documents and how to respond. This meeting came to be known as the Yongshin Joint Conference, and we'll pick things up there next episode. Um, before we go, just a quick word on um, just uh, on the podcast and the state of production of, for the podcast and stuff like that uh, for those who are interested. Um, it's been a couple weeks uh, since the last episode, and I just want to let people know um, in the I've signed a, um, a book contract to produce a textbook um, on communism and world history, uh, which I'm really excited to write. But one of the things that means is that I'm going to have to balance production of this podcast with uh, the book production. Um, I've also been invited to give a talk uh, in April in um, at a major European university, which I'm really excited about. And so I'm also trying to put together something uh, kind of original for that uh, that puts together, you know, some things I've been thinking about in terms of my academic research for quite some time uh, and sort of concentrate some of that up. So um, uh, my goal is to come out with an episode weekly. I I don't know if I've ever actually said that outright, um, but um, I think that's probably also not always going to be feasible. I know whenever we go a couple weeks without putting out an episode, I hear from some people who are a little concerned or a little upset or or what have you. Um, and so I just want to let people know this is what's going on. You know, if you don't hear from me for a few weeks at a time, you know, chances are uh, in addition to dealing what, you know, pretty much all of us deal with in terms of, you know, the various things that come up in life, you know, I do, I'm trying to balance these other projects with, um, the podcast. So I appreciate, uh, those of you who, uh, hang in there, um, when, uh, uh, you know, when, when it's coming out a little less frequently. Um, and I definitely appreciate everyone, uh, tuning in for the show and especially appreciate those of you, uh, who've been supporting the show. All right. Thanks a lot. See you next time.